1: Today, author David N. Meyer joins Nate to talk about his book, 20,000 Roads, The Ballad of Grant Parsons and His Cosmic American Music. Nate and David discuss Parsons' role in inventing country rock, his time with the birds, and the Flying Burrito Brothers, his solo career, Emmylou Harris, and tragic early death. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
0: time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined with David N. Meyer, author of 20,000 Roads, The Ballad of Graham Parsons and His Cosmic American Music. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And so Graham Parsons is a pretty heavy topic, and I wanna open with um, an argument that you make at the beginning of the book, that he's the most influential rock martyr. Can you elaborate on that and, and defend your claim? Well, I admit
2: it's a bit hype, but I think that Graham's combination of tragic romanticism and his astonishing abilities as a synthesizer and pastiche of different musical forms, different American musical forms, makes him powerfully influential uh, more than I think people realize. And he was a pioneer in hooking up various American musical forms to create a new kind of music that was this synthesis of Americana. And I think in that way, he's very powerfully influential. And I also think think he stands as the quintessential um, self-destructive artist who could not get out of his own way no matter what. In fact, who worked overtime to get into it. And like all the various myth-making, self-destructive artists of the last couple of centuries, the romantic ideal. I think Graham is close to the pinnacle of that when you look at the contradictions between his gifts and his urges to self-destruction.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I found it pretty chilling in this book. There were multiple references from people who knew Graham to the fact that he seemed to be deliberately modeling himself on Hank Williams, Sr., who famously died at age 29, and that and that more so even than my pet obsession, Brian Jones or Jimi Hendrix or Jim Morrison or any of his peers, was really dead set on the whole live fast, die young, leave a beautiful corpse ethos.
2: You know, my impression is that that fits with what people saw from the outside. My feeling is more that Graham was a child of two suicides. Very few adults survived that. I think he was profoundly traumatized at a very young age by his father's suicide and then by his mother's death by alcoholism when he was a senior in high school. And for me, Graham was a more combination of, um, these terrible psychological traumas and the genetics for addiction. And he really liked having a good time. I'm not so certain that he was determined to die young as much as he was determined to get as high as he wanted when he wanted to. And because of the the money that he was born to, he never had to worry about consequences, financial consequences, career consequences in the way that other artists had to worry about him because he was always going to have enough money to do what he wanted. So I, I'm not so sure he modeled himself after Hank as a self-destructor, but that his compulsions were certainly as powerful as Hank's.
0: Clearly. And and we'll get into the, what Chris Hilsman called the Southern Gothic nature of his childhood in a second. But mm-hmm. I wanted to get into one other aspect of your personal story relating to Graham, because for me, coming to Graham Parsons, I came to Grand Parsons as part of learning about country music. I, I first encountered Graham Parsons on the Smithsonian uh, collection of classic country music that came out in the 80s that I, my mom got for Christmas one year and I obsessed over. And so for me, for a long time, it was very difficult to understand what was so special about Graham Parsons because he just sounded like a really excellent country singer to me. And, and, mm. and You know when i was coming along country rock had already happened and so it was a very natural thing and i didn't understand that it was a big deal but can you explain from your situation and somebody was closer in age to graham what it was that was so revolutionary about his combination of of country from the rock direction that's really interesting how you came to
2: him that he was already in context you know and and when i was writing the book i would play music for my friends who had never heard him and they would say well, that just sounds like country music to me. Um, at the time that, you know, Graham got fascinated with country music, as I said in the book, American music was really ghettoized. It was fortressized, if you will. And people did not cross over from genres and subgenres. They played what they played. And country music was particularly politicized, you know, pro, pro-Jesus, pro-Nixon, pro-Vietnam, pro-certain cultural mores, and they defended those mores really strongly and saw the long-haired music of America as a threat to what traditional Nashville regarded as its values. And so for someone with long hair and an outrageous sense of style who very much loved drugs, and was very much part of the counterculture, to claim that music as his own was quite a radical step And it's fascinating to me how, as time goes by, his music, country music has caught up to Graham, and he sounds less rock and roll and more and more country. And I think if you play something like Working, Working Man's Dead, you know, by The Grateful Dead, that what they're trying to do in country music very much sounds like a rock and roll band attempting country. And I like a lot of the stuff on that record. I'm not putting it down. But Graham was vested in country music tropes, country music traditions, country music forms and formats in a way that nobody else coming from a rock or folk end of things had been.
0: Absolutely. And it's been fascinating for me to go back and listen to his early recordings, which I'd never really done before preparing for the show, and realizing how much of a folk performer he was in the sense of kingston trio the journeyman the new christy minstrels in a lot of ways his background was very similar to jim mcguinn or gene clark or david crosby these other folkies that he would later meet up with some of them at least in the birds and you know when you hear him doing fred neil songs or his song november nights you don't hear that country accent that he i wouldn't say affected because he he embodies it so brilliantly um even the weakness of his voice that aspect of his voice that sounds like he's straining for notes that's absent this guy had a really strong voice and a clear voice and he chose to model himself on these country models merle haggard and buck owens but we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit i just wanted to get into that what graham meant to you as a as a rock fan and how he he opened your eyes to country um but now let's get into this whole Southern Gothic thing. He, okay. he, he was an heir to the Snively fortune. And what That's was right. that?
2: The Snivelys were the lar- largest Orange Grove owners in America. As other people said, they were the Florida Kennedys. And Graham came in as a third generation Snively when the empire had started to decay a little bit. And the family members were a little more decadent and less driven by the their grandfather's career, but they had a very, very great deal of money.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty staggering how much money they had. And it's there's definitely an aspect of poor little rich kid. You mentioned uh, the death of his father, Coon Dog Connor, um, who killed himself right before Christmas, maybe even on Christmas Day when Graham was ten. And then his mother, Avis Snively, big Avis Snively, because his sister was named Avis as well. Who drank herself to death by the time he was 18. And like you say, yeah, the trauma of that and the genetics of addiction that we know, it, it really doesn't seem like Graham had a chance. No, I, I never, as I but be- when I
2: first fell in love with his music and began to become interested in him, I bought into this mythology of someone that was driven purely to self-destruction. But the more you learn about his family background, I never thought he did have a chance. That, and even his extraordinary privilege worked against him because it afforded him um, a lot of time to do nothing. And as we know, uh, depressives with a lot of time to do nothing tend to get just more depressed. When depressives don't have any choice but to go and do things, that seems to help the depression. But Graham's ability to do drugs and do nothing seemed to exacerbate his demons
0: yeah it reminds me very much of Michael Bloomfield, who's somebody uh that we've covered on this show who also was a trust fund heir and used that money to coast frankly and and yeah. not pursue his music as as hard as maybe somebody who was more financially hungry would have but and then the third parent in this scenario because his father killed himself when Graham was just ten, and so a stepfather comes in, and that's Bob Parsons whose name who adopted Graham and whose name Graham happily took and you know, coming into this book, my impression of Bob Parsons was, oh, he's this evil guy who married Graham's mother for her money and was after Graham's money and who took Graham Graham's body away from his friends and buried him in this location where nobody. But that's really reading the book. It comes across. It's much more nuanced than that. And that Bob Parsons was a pretty loving sta- stepfather, under all things considered. Yeah, he really he really did love Graham, and he was a profoundly toxic alcoholic
2: himself. Maybe he married Ava's for her money, but they seem to truly get along and care about one another. And the questions of whether he helped her drink herself to death, as we view alcoholism differently today and see them as just a pair of born enablers, his role in her death seems less and less sinister and more and more just a product of their alcoholism, which also echoes Graham's death which comes to see more and more just like a product of addictive behavior. But he really cared about Graham. He loved Graham. He believed in Graham's music. He supported Graham. He created a club for Graham to play in as a teenager, the Dairy Dale. And he was always supportive of Graham.
0: And before we get into the club they bought and the and the real investments that the Parsons and Snivelys made into Graham's music. Let's talk about Graham's conversion experience. Something that happened to him in Waycross. He saw somebody in Waycross that put him on the road. He followed the rest of his life. Well, he saw Elvis.
2: And like a lot of people of that generation, it was transformative. And from then on, he wanted to be Elvis. And he got a guitar and he had a piano and his family indulged him. You know, And he was in bands from the time he was 13, like so many people were in the in his Florida town which was a hotbed of music and he he never really wanted to be anything except a performer
0: and and he works very hard at it he's not quite as precocious as bob dylan but he's in rock and roll bands and they're a bit beyond garage bands. These are bands that worked. They played dances, not just at the club that his stepfather bought for him, but at other clubs in the area, which are more like rec centers, kind of. You know, No booze was being served. They were just playing to teenagers who wanted to dance. But then he transforms and his interests mature as he is later on in high school. And he kind of follows the same road Bob Dylan and Jim McGuinn and so many of their peers did into the commercial folk boom of the early 50s. Talk about that a little bit and some of Graham's efforts musical efforts in that direction. Well, Graham Graham was a true folkie, and he loved folk music, even though he seemed to be a little contemptuous
2: of Dylan, but he loved classical folk music. And when he was in his late teens, he wrote a couple of truly beautiful folk songs like November Rain, and he formed a band called- November Nights. November Nights, pardon me.
0: That's all right. Axl Rose gets in
2: everybody's brain. (laughs) I swear that didn't come from (laughs) Axl Rose. If it did, something's really wrong. Um, And the Shilohs were a very accomplished folk band and had very good musicianship. And they rehearsed a lot and they toured extensively. And Albert Grossman tried to sign them. Dylan's manager tried to sign them until he found out how young they were. And that Graham in one of his impetuous moves had signed a contract with somebody else, Earlier, But when Graham was 16 and 17, the Shilohs were playing all over the South and they played folk festivals in New York and they came to New York and played the famous folk clubs in Greenwich Village. And they were good. The Shilohs were good and Graham was a good folky songwriter.
0: And I'm going to play. I, I'd originally planned to play a different song, but I'm going to I'm going to switch it up and play uh, November Nights, which was an early Gram Parsons song that I don't know if it was ever commercially. It was definitely not commercially released in his lifetime. But this will give listeners a chance to hear Grand Parsons the folky. This is November Nights. <laughs> Carson singing one of his early songs that he later gifted to Peter Fonda, the actor, November Nights. And so Graham has these high school bands, one of them is called the Village Vanguards, another one called the Shilohs. And, and like you said, they're they're quite professional or semi-pro and even attract the interest of Albert Grossman. But then he goes off to Harvard after, after spending a few years in private school in Florida and he has another conversion experience at Harvard and he's introduced to country music and the modern country music of Merle Haggard and Buck Owens at that point. What did the Bakersfield sound mean to Graham? I think it meant to Graham a kind
2: of direct expression that the overly string produced, uh, somewhat cheesy Nashville sound did not provide. I think it also had, you know, that really tight. Um, Fender Strat sound, a very very little decoration, and the music was so much about pain, about pain and frustration, which was the kind of music Graham wanted to create, and it had a directness of expression that the Nashville sound was lacking. Also, and not so much Merle, but you know the Buckaroos really rocked, and they had an extraordinary. The Buckaroos had an extraordinarily high degree of musicianship, but they were also Reductive, You know, they took out everything, they compressed their sound, they brought it down to the essentials. And I think that spoke to Graham strongly.
0: And he's one of these kids who goes off to college, but with really no intention of getting a degree. He's there to do music and get involved in the Boston area folk scene. But as soon as he has that country music experience, he puts together a band and he moves to New York. Tell us a little bit about the International Submarine Band mark one
2: well nobody could create a horrible band name like graham <laughs> every one of his bands had had the worst possible names you know the international submarine band the flying burrito brothers he just he just couldn't couldn't name a although i always liked graham parsons and the like that was one of his bands
0: i like the fallen angels i think uh, you know, the
2: fallen angels that's a great name i agree
0: he, yeah, but preparing yeah, for yeah. the show, my kids have definitely been making fun of the band names, and they agree with you that he, the International Absolutely. Submarine Band and Flying Burrito Brothers, for both F's couldn't
2: be yeah, couldn't be worse. In fact, I resisted the Flying Burrito Brothers for years because of their name until somebody played them for me. Um, he, you know, Graham went to acid, went to Harvard to do acid basically and to hang out with other smart kids. He never had any intention of going to class. He played a lot there, fell in with a group of musicians and his ambition really hit and he and those musicians in classic form moved to New York, rented a house, lived together, did a lot of drugs and worked on their sound. And his guitar player, John Nuis, was a quite a gifted player and really grounded in country music. And he helped steer Graham to country, but they also played, and this is the first sort of hints of graham's cosmic american music of his merging of these forms they played a lot of straight up soul music too and they really like soul music and there are a lot of funny stories about them going to these new york clubs and attempting to get gigs playing country music and just basically being laughed out of
0: them yeah and it's interesting the social distance the, the social difficulties that graham had bridging himself to the country music. It's, never, it's something he really never succeeded doing in his lifetime, maybe a little bit when he played Texas at the very end of his life. But otherwise, it's, it's a story of a series of brave attempts on Graham's part to reach out to the country audience. But let's talk a little bit about the move to L.A. Like Graham Parsons is a little bit of a jet setter even before uh, he's in a signed band or, or touring or anything. And he goes off to L.A., and manages to steal David Crosby's girlfriend. Tell okay. us that story. Well, Graham had an, a really a, just
2: an extraordinary gift for leaving whatever he was built he had built right when it got to the point where he could do something with it. And he also had a gift for abandoning his bandmates in a heartbeat. And that's what he did. He fell for Nancy Parsons. He uh, liked L.A. He he moved Nancy to Ross. L- Nancy Ross. Then he moved to L.A. And as I said in the book, she represents a very interesting um, arc of LA coolness because she had been Steve McQueen's girlfriend. And very hard at that time to find anybody cooler than Steve McQueen, but she left him for David Crosby, who incarnated the new paradigm as perfectly as McQueen incarnated the old paradigm. And, you know, Crosby was famous for his womanizing, and his nickname in the birds was Tripod and he pretty much got any woman that he wanted and then Grant Parsons showed up and suddenly there was someone cooler than David Crosby and that was a revelation to Nancy and a revelation to Crosby and it announced his arrival in LA in a particular way
0: and so he brings the band or the members of the band that are willing to come with him out to LA That's right. and and gets to work you know the Grand Parsons story isn't just a matter of blowing opportunities he's also somebody who worked hard to create opportunities for himself and 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 really got the international submarine band into pretty good shape and and his singing takes enormous leaps in this period I mean he perfects that country voice and it's not an affectation there's I don't think there's anybody who can hear Grand Parsons mature Grand Parsons singing and say he's a poser this isn't you know rachel dolezal or somebody that's that's impersonating an identity he's embodying this and like you said it's it's he found a venue to sing these songs of pain and anybody who has survived the suicide or one suicide of a parent and the self-destruction of uh, the second parent by the time they're 18 obviously has a right and a need to express that pain but you know, no sooner does he get the band to LA, get him workshopped in good shape, and once again he drifts off. And it's only because uh Lee Hazelwood's girlfriends gets a Jones for this band and signs them to the label that they recorded it all.
2: That's right. And then if you if you listen to the band, she's also the ones that did her best to make the record terrible and they had to fight her tooth and nail to get the sound they wanted and were not always successful, even though I think if you play their record now, I think it's a really good record and has a quite good songwriting on it and very expressive vocals and the songs have great hooks. You can see what a songwriter Graham is. And he does come into that country voice. And to hear them tell it, they created this record in in spite of Hazelwood's girlfriend, not with her.
0: Yeah, that's 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 fair enough. But no sooner does he get that recorded. Then he's on to the next thing. He's met Chris Hillsman, who was David Crosby's bandmate at the time in the Birds. And right around this time, the Birds fired David Crosby and are looking for somebody else to fill in. And Graham Parsons initially gets signed up to be a piano player. I think Roger McGuinn called him a jazz piano player. Yeah. That's the original brief, which is.
2: Yeah, I never believed that. I, I just thought that was always nonsense from McGuinn because Graham was a perfectly competent piano player and he was a decent country music player, but no one would ever hire Graham Parsons for his piano chops. You know, Graham had a strong personality and great personal style. And again, the birds were an empire in decline and they were looking for someone, unconsciously looking for someone to bring in new ideas and point them to re-inspire them. And that's what Graham did with the birds. And to think about a guy showing up in LA out of nowhere with his country band and joining what was brief months ago, the biggest American band there was. And one of the most culturally important bands, musically influential bands, stylistically influential, fashion influential. And suddenly Graham just shows up in town and and he's with them. It it speaks to his genius for moving into the scenes he wanted and, and being accepted there.
0: And he also takes over the band. He essentially grabs the rudder and steers them into a country direction. McGuinn had been planning to do this very ambitious double LP concept album charting uh, the history of, of white music from you know uh, ancient, ancient pre-bluegrass country and plans to go all the way into the synthesized music of the future. And Graham steered them to Nashville and uh, – the creation of Sweetheart of the Rodeo. And let's hear, this version actually didn't make it on the released album, but it's been released as a bonus track since. This is Graham Parsons singing with the birds singing uh, the Leuven Brothers' since I Like the Christian I Life. to Jesus, they say I'm missing a whole world of fun. But I still love them, and I sing with pride. And that was an alternate take of The Christian Life featuring yeah. Graham Parsons. on a great song. And a great performance of it. And and like you say, on the released version, it was Roger McGuinn singing it. And he sang it very much tongue in cheek, which Graham Parsons does not do. But sort of Graham,
2: I'm, among the many things I'm grateful to Graham for is turning me on to uh, white country harmony, which I had never listened to. And he loved the Leuven brothers and I love the Leuven brothers and will argue for their primacy as a white harmony band. And he was never insincere in his love of people like the Luvins And he sang that song, uh, I think, with great, great passion and also a reflection of how much he respected and the Luvins and how much they influenced his ideas. You know, Graham called that kind of harmony high lonesome and until he found emmy lou harris he had been always looking for someone to sing that high lonesome whips and you you feel how much he loves it in that version
0: absolutely and yet once again the pattern manifests again because no sooner is graham on the road with the birds and they were uh, they were already notoriously a pretty sloppy live band they had a Bad drummer from the beginning and Michael Clark, or a limited drummer. Their first tour of England was a disaster because they were just under under rehearsed. And once they're away from their friendly confines of Rose, the club that broke them in L.A., you know, they just couldn't hang. And Graham goes on tour with them. The, The shambolic performance tradition continues. But somewhere in there, he meets the Rolling Stones and Keith Richards. And next thing we know, he's not in the birds anymore. Yeah,
2: Graham claimed that he left the birds because they were about to leave England and go do a tour in South America, I mean South Africa, and that uh, Keith explained apartheid to him and he had never encountered apartheid before. I never found that particularly credible. Graham was always well-informed and cosmopolitan. He just met Keith and the two of them were best buddies and Keith disapproved of him going and he didn't go. And that's how he left the birds. And again, this astonishing ability to move into these impossible to get into scenes, and then his astonishing ability to just turn his back on them as if they meant nothing, which is what he did to the birds.
0: Absolutely. And then when he gets back to LA, oh, and I, I gotta mention for somebody who's raised in nineteen fifties, Georgia and Florida, he knew about apartheid. Like he lived in Yes, of course. And 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 you know, it's it's pretty apparent that his politics were better than than the Region he was raised in, he was not a retrograde person um, in that aspect, and and he was probably sincere and not wanting to go to South Africa because of that. But like you say, yeah, clearly he wanted to be with Keith, he wanted to to be cool, but somehow he gets back to L.A. and somehow gets Chris Hillman to forgive him, and they and and talks Hillman out of into leaving the Birds, and they form a new group, the Flying Burrito Brothers. Tell us about that collaboration.
2: Well, you know, Hillman won't speak well of Graham now. And Hillman was always resentful, it seemed, of the attention that Graham got. So it's difficult, it was difficult for me to get a precise handle on how that happened. But they loved playing together. And Hillman loved Graham's take on country music. And I think they enjoyed one another's company a great deal. And, you know, Hillman obviously, is a virtuoso musician. And if he, he if he can touch it, it seems like he, he could play it brilliantly. And Graham was a great songwriter and singer. And I think they dovetailed very well in that regard. And I think their vision of what they wanted the music to be dovetailed as well.
0: And they were a brilliant songwriting team as well and put together a really interesting band. You had a white R&B bassist and Chris Etheridge, and Sorry. then one of the most innovative, really off-the-wall steel guitar players, this side of Glenn Campbell of The Misunderstood that nobody's heard of, but believe me, he was a genius of that era. But Sneaky Pete Kleino was just an absolute, unique creature on the steel guitar. Well, you know, it's, it's axiomatic that all steel guitar players
2: are essentially mad professors at heart that you have to be a bit nuts to figure out the steel guitar and to want to learn to play it. It's such a difficult instrument to become expert at. And it has such an insane range of sounds. But uh, Pete Klainow really was gyro gear loose. You know, he was a brilliant animator and he, he animated Gumby. He was a very innovative animator and made much more of a living as an animator than he as a pedal steel guitar player. And his pedal steel playing was influenced by his love of avant-garde jazz, and nobody sounds like him, and you can't really say he's playing accents in the manner of the great Nashville steel guitar players, and he's no understater, like all the truly great Nashville steel guitar players were. He was a, a deranged soloist, and yet his deranged approach to it really fit with these classical country songs that the Burrito Brothers were playing. And and you're absolutely right about Chris Ed, Etheridge, and he is not a country player. He's an R&B player. And his R&B bass playing really gives the Burrito Brothers sound such a unique quality and a driving rock quality. And then you've got Pete Clannot doing anything you wanted.
0: Somehow it coheres. And let's take a short break to hear from our sponsors. When we get back, we'll talk more about the Flying Burrito Brothers and their masterpiece, The Gilded Palace of Sin. And so yeah, the the Flying Burrito Brothers, I think listening to all of Graham's work in context, at this point I can now hear how the Flying Brother Burrito Brothers really were a country rock band. I mean, post Leonard Skinner or Moby Grape or even the Eagles, you expect when you when you hear the words country rock band, you expect blazing guitars and and you know that kind of thing. And you don't hear that in the Flying Burrito Brothers. But once you learn to listen, for the gospel influences, the soul covers, and Sneaky Pete's crazy distorted uh, steel guitar, then it suddenly makes sense. And you can see what an innovation it was at the time uh, when it came out. But this was not an album that was greeted with wild enthusiasm in the marketplace.
2: No, to say the least, nobody cared about it at all. And it didn't sell anything. And the label didn't have much faith in it. And, but you can really tell that every musician in Los Angeles was playing it religiously and so many different bands, sounds emerged from that record, I think. And it's, it's also on this record where, um, you know, the song Gilded Palace of Sin is just such a strange piece of poetry. And you don't know why the lyrics are so moving when they just don't make that much rational sense. But it's a very, very powerful song. And the band, I would argue more than any of his other bands, really understood what he was trying to do as a songwriter and really understood how to bring out the best in that song and make their playing support that song.
0: And now you're really making me regret not having picked that one. That was the first (laughs) song I heard. That was the song that they put on the Smithsonian collection of classic country. Um, But I've got to go with hot burrito number two, because I think this is the song. This was uh, a song that Graham co-wrote with Chris Etheridge. That seems to have come from a gospel foundation and, and Graham brings the country into it. And, and I like to think i picked a snippet where you can hear sneaky Pete and the gospel and Graham, the whole thing coming together in a package so this is hot burrito number two to tell you was one of the many masterpieces on the Flying oh, Burrito beautiful. Brothers. It was so beautiful. Gilded Palace of Sin, Hot Burrito number two. Um, the one thing, the one area where the Flying Burrito Brothers do make their mark in rock history, irrespective of the Graham Parsons myth, is their appearance at Altamont. And this was a time for once they clicked and they clicked better than the Jefferson Airplane or the Rolling Stones that day. They played Altamont and the show went well.
2: Yeah, when you put – it's very interesting to see that you put Graham in front of the scale of the audience he always thought he deserved, and they just tore it up. And you look at the pictures of Graham at the time, you, you can't believe what he's wearing. And I, I don't think he gets enough credit for being one of the great um, rock dressers of all time. And Dana Spiota, who's a National Book Award-winning author, said in one of her books of Graham that he invented the style period that came between hippie and glam. And you see that style period perfectly incarnated um, with them on the stage. And they just tore it up. Maybe it was their, their best performance ever, but they had a great crowd. And by then, people were a little more open to the idea of country rock, and they did an extraordinary job.
0: Yeah, and, and I think the Hells Angels basically being Okie Rednecks, uh, who loved country music, probably helped. It was music that soothed the savage beast, if I can misuse that well, quote.
2: Um, you know, certain levels of DMT maybe cannot be soothed by anything, but <laughs> may, may, maybe it contributed to a small little moment of peace at least.
0: Uh, indeed, and then from there, they go on a really unusual tour. They take They tour the United States – via train. This, to my knowledge, is unique among major rock bands of the period. Well, Graham wanted to imitate what the country stars
2: used to do. And so they thought they would go by train. It, it you know, it was pretty much the worst possible idea for a band with their proclivities. And there's a great line in the documentary, Dig, about the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonetown's Massacre, where the lead singer from the Dandy said, Oh, yeah, you put a bunch of addicts in a van for 36 hours with a lot of drugs. That's a great idea. And that's pretty much what happened on the train tour is that the the drinkers drank themselves into a stupor and the druggers drugged themselves into a stupor. And the other downside of that that idea was that was not a band you wanted to put in a situation where they were dependent on somebody else's schedule, like a train company's schedule. They were a band best suited to traveling on their own schedule. And that tour did not produce a lot of great gigs, and it produced a missed gig in New York that was uh, very damaging to them commercially.
0: Yeah, that's the kind of thing a band doesn't recover from, and A and M Records basically vowed never to drop another time under the band after that. That's
2: right, and and who could blame them? I mean, they were incredibly sloppy and self-indulgent and contemptuous of the label, and, you know, and that's all unwell. And you can do all that stuff if you're selling. But if you're not selling and nobody thinks your music will ever catch on, labels ain't too patient about that stuff.
0: Yeah, I I think a combination of Chris Hillman having had success in the Birds and having earned his rock star status and then Graham having the money and just the natural cool of being a guy who could steal David Crosby's girlfriend before he even got signed. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and they took it for granted and threw it away. But they didn't give up on the band. They even tried doing sessions with uh, r and legends Larry Williams and Johnny Guitar Watson. How did that work out?
2: You know, the the one-word answer for that would be bad. You know, that uh, Larry Williams couldn't care less. I mean, he spent most of his life and career not caring less. And basically, he's, Larry Williams sat in the control room getting high and letting the band do anything they wanted, It was really a measure of Graham's love of um, gut-bucket soul music and low-down American expression that led him to Johnny Guitar Watson and Larry Williams, because at the time, I think you would have been hard-pressed to find white rock and rollers who could even identify Larry Williams and Johnny Guitar Watson. This is well before Johnny Guitar Watson became famous to a broader audience. They were very famous in the soul and R&B world, and they were pioneers in those worlds. And Graham thought he would get some of their magic in his sessions, but they regarded the whole thing as a
0: joke. And the rest of the attempts to to create a second Burritos album were pretty much just as star crossed, and Graham really didn't contribute to that album in any meaningful way.
2: No, Graham had lost interest, and he was doing a lot of drugs, and he was drifting as usual, and he wouldn't rehearse. And he wouldn't come into the studio, and he behaved like a prima donna, and he alienated his bandmates in the classic pattern.
0: And gets fired after a particularly bad gig.
2: Yeah, they threw him out.
0: And because of his money, though, he's got the resources to start following the Rolling Stones around, and not just like on tour, but actually goes to the French Riviera and moves in with Keith Richards for a while. I mean, the thing is that they really loved one another.
2: Keith Richards really loved him. He admired him. He respected him. They were true friends. And Graham was unique among Rolling Stone friends in that, one, he could pay for his own drugs. And two, he could find drugs that were as good as the drugs Keith Richards could find. And three, he could go bag for bag with Keith, which nobody could do. But Graham could. And so Graham was never a sponge in that situation. He was never a leech. You know, he was someone who always paid his own way in in a multiplicity of ways, and that gave him a friendship on a par with Keith Richards that was very rare in that
0: world. In fact, if there was a sponge in that relationship, you could argue that it was Keith, because it's well documented that Graham and Keith were spending the days, which started pretty late, but the daytime hours singing and playing guitar with Graham kind of in the teacher role, teaching Keith about country music. And Keith wasn't a newbie to country music. I mean, Keith Richards and Brian Jones knew their country pretty well, but not like Graham Parsons knew it. And then at night, Keith would go and the Stones would assemble and they would record songs like Sweet Virginia that just reek of country music and reek of Graham Parsons' influence.
2: This is always the great question, you know, is how much of Graham is in exile? You know, he doesn't appear in any of it, but it's, it seems impossible to deny his influence. And, you know, Graham was one of the earliest mixtape guys and Graham would always carry a giant Revox reel to reel around and with literally hundreds of reels of tape that he had recorded with a, a great variety of different kinds of music on it. And he would play these tapes for Keith, you know, and they had country and they had soul, they had gospel, they had Appalachia, they had honky tonk. And, one, one assumes that Keith learned a great deal from what Graham played him and that these, this variety of forms appears on Exile. You could argue that Exile, in many ways, is a cosmic American music record, given its R&B, gospel, soul, country, blues, rock and roll, street rock sound. You know, the, the great Graham Parsons record on which Graham Parsons don't play.
0: Yeah, if you're going to be ripped off by somebody, Keith Richards is a pretty good choice because he's going to do a lot with it. You no, know, I,
2: I I would say synthesized.
0: You know, it's um,
2: it, it's hard to say stole when you're talking about somebody with with Keith's ear originality and all that. I mean, when I listen to the the Eagles, I think ripped off. I think stole. You know, just <laughs> Fair enough. Outright theft by people who don't have the anywhere near the quality of ideas that Graham had and desperately tried to do what he was doing. But, you know, Keith and he had had quite an equal relationship. It's it's a really fascinating relationship. And then, as I say in the book, he got chucked out of um, the villa, uh, chucked out of the exile sessions for two reasons nobody else could ever get chucked out for, and one was, Keith thought Graham was doing too much smack. And I say in the book, if Keith Richards is running your intervention, you're in trouble. Deeply. And the other thing was that Mick was jealous both of all the time Keith was spending with Graham, and because all the girls were ignoring Mick and going after Graham.
0: And yeah. so they'd already fired Brian Jones once, so they had to get rid of <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Graham. But so he he has he struggles for a while after this. Like he tries to get some sessions going with his friend Rick Gretsch. He tries to get some sessions going with the former Birds producer Terry Melcher, but nothing really pans out until he signs with Reprise Records and he finds Emily Lou Harris. Yeah, he,
2: he struggled profoundly. He had terrible time trying to kick smack. He would kick it successfully and unsuccessfully, and he wrote a couple of astonishing country songs with Rick Gretsch, whom, when I started the book, had no idea had any connection to country, but Kiss the Children is quite brilliant. And then he, um, he discovered Emmy Lou in this little club. He called her and told her he heard she was good, and would she come to D.C. and play for him, and it was raining, and she had a child, and she basically told him to get lost. She said, I'm not driving 40 miles. If you want to see me, come see me. And he did. And he brought her to L.A. And from all accounts, she was really the the iron fist in the velvet glove. And after a really embarrassing early sessions with the best possible session musicians, Elvis's band, she read Graham the Riot Act. And he cleaned up for those sessions in a way that he never had before that emmy lou had some kind of um ability to take the moral high ground with graham and get him to do what he was supposed to do
0: yeah their story has always kind of fascinated me because you know there's you know when you get two hetero opposite sex people there's always you know and they're both beautiful there's always this oh surely they were lovers thing going on but that's never been substantiated in any way, but clearly there's a deep musical love and affinity that you can just hear when they sing together.
2: Well, the great L.A. author Eve Babbitt said of Graham in that period, he was too high to make it with anybody. And Graham was doing a lot of smack and a lot of barbs, and that's not good for your sex life. And my take on it was that Graham never mistreated her the way that he had treated pretty much everyone who was his lover. And as best I could determine, I don't believe they were lovers. I believe that they were soulmates, creative soulmates. Graham was married at the time. His wife was prodigiously jealous and possessive and kept a hawk eye on him. And he was loaded all the time. And my theory, which is only that, I have no proof one or the other, is that he honored what they were doing creatively too much to try and mess it up with sex.
0: Yeah, it definitely seems like he was on his best behavior when he's around Amy Harris, and it seems like she was just an upright, professional, gifted person who was only putting up with bullshit because she was too naive to know better. You know, this is her first rodeo, and she's just walking in thinking this is how it's done, and quickly figures out no, this is not how you do it. Just think about her will. You know, that she's singing in some club and. In- Baltimore,
2: trying to support herself and her young daughter. She's, you know, teleported basically to LA into a session with pretty much the best session musicians in the world. And she instantly looks around and sees what's wrong and takes command of it. It it just speaks volumes about her self-regard, her gifts, her maturity at the time. And also, we keep coming back around to this theme, the musical potential she saw in Graham that made everybody put up with him. And their harmonies are like no one else's harmonies. Obviously, they're so beautiful.
0: And she thought it was worth it. And she took a stand. And let's hear some of those harmonies. Let's hear uh, Graham Parsons with Lou Harris singing We'll Sweep Out the Ashes in the Morning. Burn between us. We've got to solve this war. was Graham Parsons harmonizing with Emmylou Harris on Will Sweep Out the Ashes in the Morning. And I, I do want to talk a little bit more about the session band he put together because he basically poached a good chunk of Elvis's TCB band led by James Burton, That's right. but also got the uh, Ronnie Butts the drummer and, and the piano player. And this is something that Graham, this is one of the few good uses of the Snively Fortune that Graham made because he paid for that out of his pocket because Reprise did not want to pay for those guys. That's right, and you know, from from him, Emmy
2: Lou learned the paradigm of always play with the best people you can possibly play with. And when she had her hot band, which had remnants of this band in it, and Alvin Lee, she almost never made any money touring because those guys were so expensive. But she wanted the best possible sound, and I think you see reflected in it Graham's experience with Larry Williams, Graham's frustrations with part of the burritos that Graham wanted the best. And he finally had the money and the togetherness to go out and get the best. And it wasn't only Emmylou standing up to him, but he did not want to embarrass himself in the face of these musicians. And I think that's one reason his two solo records are so great, is that he wanted to perform on the level of the people that were backing him. I mean, you know, obviously James Burton is a legend. He's a god. And you don't want to embarrass yourself in front of the man who played on so many of the records that were so influential for you.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, from the start as a teen playing on uh, Dale Hawkins, Susie Q, all of Ricky Nelson's classics, and then putting together Elvis's uh, Vegas and the Elvis Comeback Band. You know, James Burton is definitely somebody who earned his stripes and his respect. And I think also that Emily learned another lesson from Graham, which is when they did put a touring band together, which was the Fallen Angels. She saw what happens when you go out with much less than the best. Yeah,
2: the Fallen Angels were just not a good band, period. There's no other way to say it. Their live recordings are painful. And Graham was, you know, very, very looped at that time. And it was just kind of an embarrassment, especially in contrast to the records, which are so astonishing, that he would go out with that kind of band, suggests this, you know, this rising and falling sine wave of interest and disinterest of caring and not being able to care less and of, easing off on on smack and barbs and then going back on smack and barbs and seeing the consequences.
0: Yeah. And I have to knock the birds again because it seems like his first experience of a big time band was playing with the birds and they were just notoriously not about the live act. And, you know, they, they blew it on their first English tour. They blew it at Monterey, et cetera, et cetera. So somewhere he got the idea that you could get away with it and there's an anecdote you have from Emily Lou harris in the book where she's describing their rehearsals with the fallen angels and the way they would spend hours and hours playing together and sometimes it would come together but they never worked on starts to songs they never worked on intros they never thought about pacing or a set list and she thought it would just magically come together because this is her first tour and they get out there and they quickly figure out this is not magically going to come together and And she, again, takes the situation in hand and does what she can with it. The one thing I want to get to before we move to the tragic end of Graham Parson's life is there were a few gigs, and, and he did make an impact with some people in Texas. And this is a very key time for Texas music when a lot is going on with the synthesis of country and rock. Yeah, Steve Earle tells the
2: story of hearing that Graham was going to be in Houston. He said, I was off to Houston like a prom dress. And that Graham, you know, influenced Earl, he influenced Towns Van Zant. He was there just before the burst of the cosmic cowboys. And clearly the sophistication of his writing and showing what you can do in a country form and still be powerfully individually, idiosyncratically self-expressive, I think had a huge impact on all the great songwriters that we think of the Texas scene in the early and mid seventies, you know, they came out of the cosmic cowboy scene towns and Guy Clark and Jimmy Dale Gilmore and Steve Earle, and, you know, on and on and on.
0: And then he goes back to LA for one more session, the Grievous Angel sessions. And again, cleans up for the sessions, clocks in, does the work, notches another damn near close to a masterpiece. A
2: masterpiece. Yeah. I would argue.
0: And uh, and I'm only dinging it just because I love Gilded Palace so much uh, (laughs) and Sweetheart of the Rodeo, but they're damn fine records. And uh, takes a quick trip to Joshua Tree, which was one of his favorite places, with an old friend, a girl he'd known since high school, Margaret Fisher, and everything goes terribly wrong.
2: The the revelation of my book was it for me was that the mythology you had always heard was that Margaret Fisher was responsible for Graham's death, but she wasn't. And Graham had laid off heroin for a good while. He'd been doing barbiturates, and that night he wanted to do smack, and they found liquid morphine, and he died the classic pre-fentanyl a heavy user's death, which was. Graham had a prodigious capacity for heroin. He could do a lot of it. And he shot up at his old level, the the classic junkie era, after not having shot up for a long time. And nobody with him, the two women who were with him, knew what to do in those circumstances. And they did the few things that Lore told you to do. You know, they, they put ice cubes up inside of him. They tried to walk him around. He seemed to come out of it. And then he... Fell unconscious, and by the time the ambulance came, he had died. And it's really hard to remember how different the culture was then. If someone OD'd, you know, the first thing you did was throw everything out that was in the room. You would never call the cops. You would always assume someone would come out of it. There were no such things as injections. There was hardly anything as rehab. There was no culture of understanding addiction as a disease. The culture was all about, are you man enough to do drugs and how much can you do? And I think that the two women who are with him are essentially blameless in his death because Graham wanted drugs. He was going to do drugs. They weren't going to stop him from doing that. Nobody had any medical training then. They did what little they could. Then they finally called an ambulance and he OD.
0: And the indignities don't stop there. His his tour manager, Phil Kaufman who the two of them had just been to the funeral of Clarence White, who was a brilliant guitar player and member of The Last Phase of the Birds, and who had played with Graham quite a bit, and they had just been to his funeral. And it had been one of these situations where a young person dies who lived a certain lifestyle, and the funeral was directed by his parents. It's the classic preacher who didn't know the guy who gave the stock sermon, and they felt violated. And they supposedly promised each other they would never let that happen. And so what did Phil Kaufman do? Well, you know,
2: uh, for a while, Phil Kaufman was regarded as a hero for this. I do not regard him as a hero for this at all. I think it was a really self-indulgent, self-aggrandizing Thing to do, but supposedly they made a vow that whoever died first, the other would burn his corpse to prevent the family from this exercise in hypocrisy you described. And Phil Kaufman went to LAX with a hippie hearse, a, a hearse painted up in hippie iconography, and somehow convinced the attendant in this freight depot that he was there to get Graham's coffin, which was poised to be flown to New Orleans for funeral. He and a friend get put the coffin in this hearse and they drive it out to Cap Rock to Joshua Tree, Graham's favorite place there. They take out the coffin the coffin and Kaufman fills it with gasoline and sets it on fire and drives off. And there's Graham's body burning in the coffin. And it it adds to Graham's myth, but from everyone I spoke to in the families, everyone felt terribly shortchanged and bereft that they never had a chance to really. A say goodbye to Graham, and they regarded this as a, a real um, affront and almost obscene that Kaufman would have done this.
0: Yeah. It's not like he actually succeeded in cremating the body. He sort of lit it on fire and abandoned it, and um, as, yeah, especially reading the family's description and seeing the documentary and seeing his half-sister's description of it, it's really a violation uh, Complete. to the survivors. Complete. And, um, We're running out of time, but I wanted to get a quote that you put at the front of the book. And this is from Evan Connell from Son of the Morning Star, but he's referencing Proust and remembrance of things past. He says, contrary to popular belief, people do not learn from experience. Instead, they respond to a particular stimulus in a predictable way. And this repeatedly, again, 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 and again, this undeviating compulsive response may be observed again, 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 and again, generation after generation, the dismal message reappears like writing on the wall. I mean, it's pretty obvious, but tell us why you picked that quote. Because
2: I thought it encapsulated Graham perfectly, and and it speaks to a lot about addiction, but I think Proust is right. We don't learn from experience. I never make the same mistake once. I never have. And Graham always returned to his compulsive patterns of trying to destroy himself. He always returned to getting in his own way as fast as he could. And, you know, there's a great line from a Neil Young song that goes, he tried to do his best, but he could not. And that seems to be Graham's life very much. And it wasn't just patterns of addiction. It was patterns of running from affection, of running from friendship, running from creative opportunities, running from commercial opportunities if something turned out to be good, Graham would find a way to either escape it or destroy it. And that pattern continued right up to the moment of his death.
0: And on the sunny side, he left us with six really, really great albums. And his music has meant a lot to a lot of people. So I guess all is forgiven, Graham Parsons. I
2: I always say his is the most moving white voices I know, and it's not white voices that move me. And for me, there is no white singer who can touch him for emotional expression and depth and range. And the courage of his songwriting, the unflinching way in which he viewed his own corrupt character and put it in a song, I think has no equal. And that's the core of country music, to address your own um, problems, inconsistencies, flaws with so much heart and soul. And for me, that's Graham's legacy.
0: Not bad for a poor little rich boy. So, David Meyer, thanks for coming on. The book is 20,000 Roads, The Ballad of Graham Parsons and His Cosmic American Music. And I hope we can have you back on to talk about the Bee Gees sometime.
2: Oh, I'd I'd love to come on and talk about anything you like. It's really a pleasure. Thank you, David. Okay, thank you.
1: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Nate will be back next week with Nadine Cohodes to talk about chess records and her book, Spinning Blues into Gold. Let it roll as a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. 20,000 Roads, the Ballad of Graham Parsons and His Cosmic American Music, is published by Iconoclassic Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.